Well, good morning again. Uh, as I mentioned, we are kicking off this week and then we'll be for the next few weeks uh, doing Commitment 2024. And my understanding is that this has been a practice uh, here at Christ Lutheran for uh, quite a few years, at least quite a few before I even got here. And it's important to, I think, lay the groundwork and talk about what this is and what it is not, especially because we did a, a fundraising drive back in October, yeah, October, uh, where uh, we raised, um, honestly, a miraculous and generous amount of money to go for, toward our new Director of Youth, Family Life, and uh, School Ministries position. And I'll talk about that in a few minutes as well. But Commitment 2024 is not that. It is not a fundraising drive. We are not asking you for money directly. Uh, Commitment 2024 is, first off, just a practical thing that we do here because it turns out that it is really, really helpful to have a rough idea of how much people might be giving to the ministry over the next year because that makes it a whole lot easier to plan what we might be doing this next year. So ultimately, Commitment 2024 is just about that, but it's not just about money. Because we also are interested in, um, in who is interested or willing to donate their time, get involved in some of our ministries, and all of that good stuff. And we'll be saying more about that over the next few weeks, leading up to Sunday, which will be March 10th. A couple of things to add to this. Um, when you uh, receive your letter, you'll also receive a card uh, asking you to pledge your time, uh, your investment uh, in ministries, and, of course, the uncomfortable money question of how much you might expect or intend to give to the ministry. Um, on Commitment Sunday, you will be able to bring it up to our liturgical box of stuff and drop it in, or you can mail it in. And as always, I have no access to this. There is only one person that I am aware of that has access to it. And the only reason why he has access to it is to add the numbers, just so that we know. And then I understand that that box will then go and collect dust in his uh, garage. So, with all that out of the way, you know, the, the, uh, the, the boring administrative stuff, let's talk about what we're going to talk about this year for the next few weeks. Last year, we highlighted some ministries that we have through this congregation. Uh, we looked at our mission in the International District, uh, God Cares About You. We looked at our Stephen Ministry Program, and we talked about our school. And these are all ministries that continue to thrive and are doing awesome work. Um, this year, instead of looking at what we have done over the last year or so, I want to start looking at what, is, what does it look like to move forward? What does ministry look like, not just here and now, but also maybe over the next year, maybe even the next five years? Don't hold me to this, but next year we'll probably look at what we've done. So I'm maybe going to establish some kind of alternating pattern. We'll see. And in order to, to look ahead, 
and look at, at what it means to invest ourselves in the ministry work here in Albuquerque, New Mexico, it's really important first to kind of understand where we are. In other words, if you think about it like this, ministry exists because there is a problem or set of problems that need to be addressed. And in order to address problems or issues, the first thing we have to do is understand what some of those issues are, or at least what we're walking into. That's like, uh, and, and I, I haven't gotten a text like this in a while, but um, every once in a while, I'll get a text that says, hey, pastor, can we talk? Well, I'd really like to know what I'm walking into first. <laughs> Uh, so we're going to start talking about what we're going to walk into. Uh, first off, uh, if you have had a conversation with somebody who is about, I'm going to say maybe 18 and younger, you might have had this experience where you have no idea what they're saying or what they're talking about. And I am going to be very honest here, um, as part of my job, I teach catechism to 7th and 8th grade in our school, and there's been at least once or twice where a student has said something, and I pretended to receive a text message that I really needed to read, and what I actually did was look up on Urban Dictionary what they said. <laughs> I am being 100% honest. <laughs> Um, see, there, there have been some cultural and, and generational shifts. And we talked about this a little bit in October, but it's worth talking about a little bit more. Uh, and because as we talked about in October, when you change the way information is passed or, or communicated, you're going to change the way people think. You're going to change the way culture operates. And if you take a look at like, uh, the baby boomers, and then Gen X, and then millennials, and then Gen Z, and then whatever the heck comes after Gen Z. I have no idea what they are, but they are like aliens. Um, you can see some pretty important shifts, and a lot of this hinges right around my generation. So I'm a millennial. I'm about the oldest you can be and still be a millennial. What makes me different from, say, Gen X and the boomers, is that uh, my most formative years were spent with access to the internet, with what at least feels like unlimited amounts of, amounts of information. Uh, however, there's a slight difference, because if you go to like the youngest you can be and be a millennial, they don't remember a time when that wasn't accessible, whereas I remember when that got installed in my house. So even then, there's some diversity and difference there. The newest and emerging generations just think about things differently. There is no like center of authority. Uh, they, uh, information is getting kind of transformed into entertainment, which I think to be, this is going to make me sound old, but I think that's incredibly dangerous, but whatever. Um, and, and, and so like they... they, they Language, I think, is changing pretty rapidly for them, and the way that they interact with their world, usually staring at a screen, is very, very, very different. But that's not even the root of the problem. 
Because I think if, unless you've lived, lived under a rock, in which case, good for you, you've probably noticed that just the general culture has become more divided and more polarized. And there's a lot of complicated reasons for this. And honestly, the reasons are not quite as interesting as the problem itself. Because on, on the one hand, uh, you, you might identify yourself as, as seeing that our culture has made uh, some changes in some really positive directions and has progressed in some certain ways that you really appreciate, while there's also a contingency that sees this as dangerous and a threat and is trying to claw a lot of that back. On the other hand, you might see that there are some very, very um, powerful and important traditional values that our culture has maintained, and that there is a group that is pushing those boundaries way too far and in some very, you would consider, dangerous ways. And so you would like to see those uh, kind of put down or, or maybe uh, a little more sanity brought to those who are trying to push things too far away. Now, interestingly enough, I, I hopefully have identified everybody here. Hopefully I've made some people uncomfortable. Um, and, and the reality is that there's probably a little bit of truth in either side. But what do we do about it? Which is the direction to go? And even worse, and again, because it's an election season and uh, I'm already breaking out in hives, um, depending on which group you fall into, I can probably guess how you vote. So what do we do? The reality is, I, I think actually, that, that culture has always been crazy. The world in which we live has always been weird. There will always be a tension between those who are pushing boundaries and those who want to maintain traditional ideals. And though what, where those boundaries are and what those ideals are um, have long been culturally determined and they have never been as consistent as any of us would like to think. In other words, culture's a mess. The world's a mess. And when I hear Christians, usually Christians, talk about their concerns about where things are going, and sometimes the implied uh, addition to where things are going is, and why are we in this handbasket? It's a slow-burning joke. Um, I hear a lot of fear. And I would submit to you that first things first, we have to address the fear. The fear of cultural change, the fear of liking the changes and those getting clawed back, whichever side of the aisle you uh, metaphorically sit in. Because fear is a very dangerous human experience. Fear evokes that fight, flight, or freeze response. And there are some times when fight, flight, or freeze can be very healthy. For example, if there's a bear. If there's a bear, you need your amygdala to fire in some very specific ways so that if you're manly like me, you will fight it. Yeah, no, I'll just, I'm more of like a freeze, I'll just get mauled. Um, or 
better yet, if you have that, the right response to run. And I think it kind of depends on what, what kind of bear, but I have ADHD and I'm going off on a tangent. Anyway, fear is a killer. And there's a reason why I'm lacing this with jokes. Because humor can sometimes cut through that. When we encounter somebody or something that, is, that we would perceive as a threat to our values, ideals, uh, in some shape, way, or form, who we are, we will often have triggered in our brains that same response as though we encountered a threat to our life. This explains why social media can be kind of a dumpster fire. Because how dare someone be wrong on the internet, I have to tell them what's right. What we're actually experiencing is a sense of indignation or a sense of fear because this is a threat implied anyway to who I am. The problem is that when we are afraid, we cannot think. I have a, a professor, uh, had a professor at, at seminary of psychology, and I can't remember the exact number, but he argued that once your heart rate goes above, I think, 130 beats a minute, you cannot have a, a good conversation because you're, you're in that fight, flight, or freeze response. You're in that cycle. You can't move forward. You have to deal with that first. And if we as followers of Jesus are looking to make an impact in our ministry, uh, through our ministry in the Albuquerque area, which is a unique and wonderful city with tremendous amounts of need, the first thing we have to do is not be afraid. So how do you do that? Well, if you're in that moment, deep breaths, take a step back. Don't say that thing that you really want to say, even though it would feel so good to say it. Just no, My wife just laughed really hard. Um, <laughs> thanks, Katie. Just Eric's dirty laundry. There it is. Um, <laughs> but as a community, how do we do this? What does it mean like to not be afraid? And to that... We finally get to Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29, 11, and I've said this a few times in different contexts, it's a very famous verse. Christians love to stamp it on things uh, because it is very, uh, very optimistic that God has plans for my life, plans for my, to prosper me, um, which is maybe dangerous thinking because what do you mean by prosper? Usually we use that to mean lots of money, lots of money basically. Uh, and that's almost certainly not what God has in mind here. But if you've noticed during the reading that Jeremiah is addressing people who are beaten down, terrified, exiled, and now living in a hostile nation. Literally living amongst the people who did it to them. Now, if we here in America think we have reason to be concerned about those around us and the direction that our community is going, they have more, like by a lot. And so Jeremiah, as the only prophet 
in, in that uh, era who is actually speaking the word of God, and he addresses some of them in uh, chapter 29, saying, don't listen to them, stop listening to them. For the love of God, stop listening to them. That's my translation. Uh, that Jeremiah is speaking to these people and yet his message is probably not immediately what they want to hear. But it cuts through some of the fear. Because if our goal is to just survive, in spite of things that are new and different, or things that seem kind of regressive, you know, if you're progressive or regressive, hopefully you can kind of see yourself in either of those the, the worst thing we could do is just try to hunker down, to try and just get out of here, to escape. And unfortunately, there's a very strong current within the American church right now of this idea of just escape. And escape is a fear response, and we will not do anything creative if we maintain that posture. Instead, Jeremiah, speaking the word of the Lord, says, if you recall, plant gardens. Gardens take time. They take effort. They, they, they take a lot of things that happen that are outside of our control. I can water plants. I cannot make them grow. They will do that on their own. He says, get married. Have kids. Marry off those kids so that they can have kids. That takes time. That takes engagement. It takes relationships with the people around you. And if I may just quickly paraphrase, he says, pray for the peace and prosperity of Babylon. Because when they prosper, you will prosper. In other words... To put this in a, a, a different way, what Jeremiah is saying, if I can <clears throat> quote um, my, uh, my mentor, uh, pastor and mentor in college, abandon all plans of escape and be where you are. Because suddenly, if we understand ourselves as Christ Lutheran Church and school here in Albuquerque, New Mexico, in the year 2024, and we are asking ourselves, who are we and what are we doing here, and, and how do we minister to the people where we are at, suddenly the question gets a lot more interesting. Because... That question is devoid of fear. We are no longer asking, how do we deal with the mess of whatever is happening in this organization or that government or these people? Instead, it's just, man, this is where we are. Here are the people that Jesus has laid in front of us. How do we meet them and love them? Regardless. Now we're asking questions that are not afraid. Because we are asking questions about how do we creatively love people where they are at. And if we take the long narrative arc of the Bible, which finds its climax in Jesus, 
very seriously, and I would like to think that we do. The story of the gospel, of the incarnation, with, with filled, by the way, with echoes of Jeremiah, not just chapter 29, but the whole thing, is that our God is a God of engagement, not a God of fear. Because if God is willing to send his own son into his creation to redeem it, to engage with people of all kinds of, uh, from all kinds of walks, with all kinds of interesting ideas about who God is, then as it turns out, that's, that's fundamentally part of our story. And so as we look ahead to the next couple of weeks, to look at what it means to move forward, what it means to think about ourselves, all of us here as parts of a ministry here at Christ Lutheran. It begins with the reality that it doesn't, it doesn't actually matter that much how crazy the world seems to be. Because he has placed us in it. Not to live lives of escape. Not to live lives of fear. Not to live lives uh, like, like ruminating on the illusion of control, but rather lives of creativity, led by the Spirit, learning how to follow the Holy Spirit as He leads us to people who desperately need His help. As we lead lives of engagement, Echoing the words of Jeremiah, but indebted to and embedded in the story of Jesus, who comes to redeem us from our sin and brokenness and ultimately death, to create new life, and then to be the avenue of that new, where that new life spreads everywhere we go. So over the next couple of weeks, we'll start asking, what does that mean and what does that look like? I hope you're excited, because I'm excited. Amen.